1: right and welcome everybody to another episode of the talking space podcast this is talking space episode 512 for the week of monday april 15th 2013 i'm sawyer rosenstein and joining me tonight is
0: mark raderman welcome mark good to be here and uh what do you say we talk about space
1: oh i like that you know that'd be a good name for a show
0: wouldn't it yeah i have to think about that maybe we can start one
1: Yeah, fun fact to everyone out there, it's uh, trademarked, so, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Beach to it. Anyway, you'll notice we're a little light tonight on people, and that's because Gene Mikulka, who's normally with us, is currently down at Wallops Island, Virginia, and uh, we'll talk about why he's down there in just a minute. But let's get started off, because even though we may be light on people, we are very heavy on stories, surprisingly. And the first one that we're going to talk about is something that happened, in fact, a little bit earlier today on today's recording date. And that is, again, April 15th. And earlier today, a Russian Progress vehicle, which is the unmanned resupply vehicle launched by Russia, Was undocked from the International Space Station Full of garbage and everything else that the crew wanted to get rid of And successfully, intentionally, burned up in the atmosphere The Progress served its purpose, in fact Boosting the International Space Station a couple of times And it has been at the station since October 31st of 2012 And this was the Progress 17M, also called Progress 49 It's still getting, uh some busy stuff from Russia,
0: and still getting some resupply up there. Very essential. And, you know, you said something just then that uh, I, I kind of forget about, and that's the fact that many of these uh, cargo runs have a capability of boosting the entire station back up to a higher orbit. And uh, it's something the shuttle used to do, and the Russians provide uh, propellant for uh, thrusters that they have on station. And here are the uh, actual cargo vehicles themselves provide that capability. Very important. Without it, the mission wouldn't be looking at 20 years. Very true, let alone the 10-plus it's been. You know, that's something the astronauts have got to look forward to when there's a a cargo... uh, capsule coming up to him because of the goodies and the essential stuff and you know maybe a little care package from home but also the opportunity to get rid of some garbage at the end of the end of the mission for that uh, progress or whichever capsule they have (laughs) be able to clean out a little bit
1: oh yeah definitely I can imagine Chris Hadfield was a little as he mentioned on Twitter he was you know a little upset to see it go but at the same time you know happy to get rid of all the garbage and um Just so you know, the undocking occurred at 8.02 a.m., and you were talking about them anxiously waiting the next one. Well, the next one is scheduled to launch Progress 51 from the Baikonur Cosmodrome on April 24th at 6.12 a.m., all times Eastern. So there's one launch coming up to the International Space Station, and there's another launch coming up, but it's not yet to the International Space Station. And that brings us to what we were talking about with Gene earlier. And that is that Orbital, which is another commercial company, is planning their first demo launch of their Antares rocket from Wallops Island, Virginia, this Wednesday. And that is Wednesday the 17th of April is the current planned launch date. The launch time is scheduled for about 5 p.m. Eastern Time, however, there is a three-hour-long window. Now, Orbital Sciences is also along with SpaceX in NASA's COTS program, which is encouraging them to launch commercial things to help supply the International Space Station. And As we know, SpaceX has already begun delivering things to the space station, and Orbital, if this planned test goes well, will then hopefully make its next step to the space station. Now, weather for the launch as of today's date, Monday, April 15th, is only 45% chance of go, with low clouds being the main concern, but if it does not go on the 17th, they also have dates available from the 18th
0: through the 21st. Gee, it almost sounds like they don't have quite the uh, range traffic that the uh, Space Coast of Florida does.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it seems like just a little less. I mean, this is one of NASA's lesser-known launch sites that normally, you know, you'll see an occasional launch or two out of Wallops, but nothing big. I mean, it's called the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport. It doesn't, you know, have the same pizzazz as the Kennedy Space Center, but... Still, the fact that they're having a commercial crew launch is going to be interesting, and it's on the pad, they've started performing their tests on it, and everything, with the exception of weather right now, is green.
0: Yeah, we have to learn some new acronyms and names, Uh, you know, WFF, Wallops Flight Facility. Uh, This is going to be the inaugural launch for that pad that was set up for, for Orbital's use on this with this particular rocket, so... I know they've done testing in the past as to their propellant systems and all of the electronics and systems that are part of the, the pad, the ground equipment, and uh, they're ready to go. And it, you know, it's funny, you know, we keep talking about SpaceX, 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 and more SpaceX, and in the back of my mind, I've been wondering, okay, where is Orbital? It just, I felt uncomfortable knowing that they were a player in this, and yet, there didn't seem to be anything happening. Well, what's happening is going to start happening now at a quicker pace. Once they have this launch, they're going to follow up, I think, with another one sometime this summer, and uh, pretty soon I think we'll see them carrying cargo up to station.
1: Exactly. As you mentioned that, um, Orbital Sciences, as we mentioned, part of the COTS program has been given up to $288 million to help develop the Antares rocket, as well as the Cygnus spacecraft, which is different from SpaceX's in that it is not returnable, whereas the SpaceX Dragon capsule splashes down in the ocean, this one, when it's finished, it's designed to burn up similar to the progress that we just mentioned. However, the Cygnus is not on this flight. It is a dummy load on the top as they test the rocket's capability. So... A big test, because I remember SpaceX's first test, you know, it got some decent publicity. And from what I've been hearing on Twitter and from Gene, actually, I've heard mixed things about people saying that um, there's not going to be a huge turnout. And then people saying that all the hotel rooms in the area are packed. So, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to watch.
0: Yeah, I made a pass through there a couple years ago, literally just driving, uh, you know, up the coast. And you know, just looking out the window of the car at you know some of the massive satellite dish antennas pointed upwards for tracking and and uh, and satellite communications and whatnot, and thinking, wow, this is interesting. I sure wish I could hang around, but it's kind of remote, so you know that may be a factor too, and how many people that uh, you know a launch can accommodate. I haven't got the feel of how wide an area you can disperse to once you're. You know off the facility
1: right for but- example the kennedy space center you've got the vip sites you've got the causeway and then you've got surrounding areas so i don't know
0: i get i bet gene will be telling us more about it shortly
1: i hope so too and we should be getting some updates from gene throughout the week and um if we get any of them we will insert them into this episode as soon as possible so hopefully future gene will have something for us Future Sawyer here, uh, just wanted to say that we don't have an update from Gene McCulka, but an update on the Antares launch, it was scrubbed due to an umbilical that came loose on the second stage of the rocket before launch. They are planning for a 48-hour turnaround, and the next launch attempt will be Friday, April 19th. And... As always, keep an eye out on our Twitter account, at Talking Space, and you can also check out Gene's Twitter, which is at GeneJM29, and we'll be getting you some updates on the launch of the Antares, and as always, best of luck to Orbital, and go Antares, go Orbital! Alright, so we're cramming a lot of information already into round one here. And we're not even close to done yet with round one because we've got to go to Mark for what he's got
0: for us. Roll camera one, or whatever that Hollywood type speak would be for this sort of thing. Well, I'm going to talk to you about a sensor that is part of NeoCam, which is Near Earth Object Camera. An infrared sensor that's going to be part of this just passed some critical design testing they uh, mimicked in the testing the temperatures and pressures of deep space and this neocam which is going to be a cornerstone instrument for a proposal to have a space based asteroid hunting telescope this neocam is the the key element of it and they said it passed those tests there's going to be results published in the journal of optical engineering which I just mentioned that because I don't think of NASA testing as something that's going to be in an optical engineering publication but here you go this is going to be a vital component to help identify capture and relocate an asteroid closer to earth for future exploration by astronauts this is one of the investments that's been made in the NASA discovery program and their astrophysics research and analysis program and they want to improve future missions, and of course we 've had a lot of discussion it seems like uh, very recently this year alone about near earth objects and asteroids and the, the tremendous uh, surprise of the the one meteor that missed earth and or the asteroid that missed Earth and the one that came in inbound on Russia. These infrared sensors are a powerful tool to help discover and catalog this asteroid population that's out there. One of the contributors on this project was Amy Mainzer, who also contributed to the NEOWISE project. Now NEOWISE was an enhancement of the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, or WISE mission, that launched in December 2009. WISE scanned the entire celestial sky in infrared light twice. It captured more than 2.7 million images of objects in space ranging from faraway galaxies to asteroids and comets close to Earth. NEOWISE has discovered previously unknown objects, including 21 comets, more than 34,000 asteroids in the main belt between Mars and Jupiter, and 134 near-Earth objects. So here we are. We've got a new sensor coming uh, coming down the development pipeline. And it's going to be something that's going to be part of the announced goal to for NASA to go to an asteroid. I think it's kind of interesting. It's uh, surprisingly small. Looking at a picture of it, a technician or engineer is holding this device between, between their two hands, and it's, it's, it's small. It's a sensor that is 2160 by 1439 pixels, the width and the height and uh, it 's made of mercury, cadmium, and tellurium it 's a new chip about the size of a postage stamp, and it 's going to be detecting that faint heat emitted by asteroids circling the sun it 's their first megapixel sensor capable of detecting infrared wavelengths at temperatures achievable in deep space without refrigeration or chirogens and I think that 's cool because that 's one I remember hearing about wise when it launched. How they relied on on super cold uh, temperatures of the of the instruments to allow it to have this tremendous sensitivity that it had, and here's a megapixel sensor that doesn't need the refrigeration and the and the cryogens that uh, Wise had. So, lots of little details there. I hope you find it interesting. We'll be hearing a lot more about it. I know.
1: Definitely, because I mean, NEOs, you know, near Earth objects. If- been a hot topic lately with all of the, like, with the Russian meteor recently and with all these other threats and the possibility of Mars being impacted later this year. I mean, this is big, and you showed me a picture of it earlier, and it's such a tiny little device.
0: And I'm going to talk more later on in the show about some near-Earth objects and asteroids. Can't tell you all about it right now.
1: Oh, boy, he's teasing us for later, so... We'll keep on the edge of our seats till when we get to that one. Alright, so with that, that brings us to the end of round one. How are you liking it with the two of us so far? I'm thinking it's going pretty well. So let's keep this train moving on, and let's go on to round two. And we're going to start things off with everyone's favorite word. As Gene would say, come on, everybody knows it. Shall we all say it at once? Sequestration. Oh boy, that's been fun, keeping everyone at bay. But one thing that it might affect is what was announced last week, which we were off last week and didn't get to cover this, but I think it's important enough that without Gene here, I think we should still mention this. And this was the 2014 budget request by NASA. And the Obama administration is asking for $17.7 billion for NASA in its 2014 budget. And this is, um, you know, it, it doesn't seem like a terribly large amount compared to what we've had in the past. But um, what's really interesting is taking a look at the breakdown. The budget includes um, $5 billion for space science, which includes... Almost uh, six and a half million for the James Webb Space Telescope, the Hubble replacement, uh, and uh, 1.2 billion for planetary science, including initial funding for the mission that we talked about to Mars in 2020, one of the discovery class missions. The ISS is getting three billion, including funds to pay for. US seats on the Soyuz. And they're requesting 822 million to continue the development of domestic commercial manned spacecraft. Those seem relatively ordinary for the most part. Um, $2.7 billion for the space launch system. Lots of fancy numbers here. But when you ignore the numbers and read one of the things that they're proposing, it's only $105 million. I say that lightly, of course, but compared to the other numbers we're talking about, $105 million is nothing. And that is for something that Senator Bill Nelson of Florida was highly supporting And we had talked about on this show in the past as a possibility, and that's $105 million to begin, quote-unquote, from spaceflight now, laying the groundwork for a proposed mission to robotically capture a small asteroid and move it into high Earth orbit to serve as a target for manned sample return visits in the 2020s. If you remember last time we talked about it, I expressed my apprehensions about the fears of possibilities of things going wrong, where if you grab it wrong and it hits the Earth or you put it in the wrong orbit, or basically there's a couple of doomsday scenarios we looked at, and we were hesitant about this, but it looks like NASA may be going through with this.
0: Bizarre, huh? (laughs) Pardon me laughing. It's not funny, but, you know, when this mission gets, you know, closer and closer to to flying and, and being worked, that uh, there, there are going to be people who are going to do the the Chicken Little uh, children's story the the sky is falling the sky is falling, and uh, they'll be blaming NASA for it. And uh, you know why should we take the risk of uh, of of doing this and bringing bringing destruction upon ourselves? And uh, you can just see how how crazy some of the stories are going to be. Uh, even though it's an excellent goal and something that we need to do, you know, now is to keep our program moving forward.
1: Yes, I mean, the plan that they're talking about here is ambitious. Again, same Spaceflight Now article. Uh, basically, what it would entail would be sending a robotic spacecraft to a targeted 20 to 30 foot wide asteroid around the end of this decade. Spacecraft would have a large container on the end pretty much, would scoop up the asteroid slowly, and then move, maneuver it into Earth orbit. And we're talking high Earth orbit rather than low Earth orbit where our satellites are. I mean, we're talking probably closer to lunar distances. But this is this is bizarre, to say the least.
0: You know, if you take a look back at uh, the history of, of the... U.S. space program and the international collaboration that has become the, the ISS. We've gone from, from a solo uh, vehicle, the shuttle flying for roughly two weeks at a time, doing science and, and specific missions, to construction of the space station, to, you know, every, every shuttle flight always had science that was in some way related to what they were doing along with the construction but uh if we didn't have the space station i'm not saying that anything is going to happen but if it if it just wasn't there if the plan had never been you know put into gear and and have it built and designed and built and and have it what would we be doing would we be uh i don't think we'd be going to the moon or mars i think we would still be fumbling around doing little things and i don't think we would necessarily perhaps even have a mission to to go to an asteroid as something to stretch us out a little bit Uh, i think the space station has been good in that it's required a lot of technology development a lot of a lot of ways to do things for long duration spaceflight that is actually going to be a stepping stone to help us go just a little bit further out um you probably wondered as I started this little discussion with myself, you know, where am I headed? Is is he going to slam the uh, space program or the ISS? No. I, I think that things are working out maybe not exactly like we would have liked looking back for 10 years or more, but at least we're still having a, a plan that looks a little closer to what we'll actually see happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned without the ISS. I, I mean, that opens up a whole new can of worms of where we would be with shuttle and with any replacements for it and i don't think we want to even touch that one but it's an interesting thought though and um as you were touching on with the iss we mentioned how much they're getting for it but one of the concerns with the budget as i mentioned before is the sequestration which if it goes through um there are reports that if the sequestration remains in its current form then NASA's portion of the budget could be cut by nearly $1 billion. So, that $17.7 billion could be closer to $16.7 billion. Which, you know, it doesn't sound like it's, you know, too terrible still. I mean, we're not talking a lot of money here. We're still talking 0.4% of the budget as a whole. But that doesn't sound bad until you compare it to some other numbers. And... That's where we switch to our next story, and we're going to Russia for this one. So this is from Russia with love, at least love of their space program. As Vladimir Putin announced, they pledge to add $52 billion more to their space program over the next eight years. To put that into perspective, from a Slate.com article by Phil Plate. Uh, 2011, Russia spent a bit under $4 billion on the space program. This would raise it to $6.5 billion a year. Keep in mind, we may be getting 17.7 or $16.7 billion, but they're the only ones who are currently launching humans to the International Space Station. And one of the other major differences is that the thing that has been cut probably the most of all the NASA programs is unmanned. And in this, Putin is actually adding more money towards uncrewed missions. There was another report, apparently, that um, the Russian premier had actually approved $69 billion over the eight-year span. But either way, we're talking a lot of money going into Russia's space program, saying that they care does this say that we don't care about our space program?
0: Be interesting to understand the the Russian economy and the political climate to uh, to see how exactly uh, they're doing this. Because I don't imagine anybody, except perhaps China, has an abundance of money thanks to the imbalance of trade that uh, that they're enjoying these days. And I don't know how Russia would be doing that.
1: Well I mean they may have to cut back on Putin's shirtless horseback riding but <laughs> but that you know that that'll cut off a couple of expenditures but that's about it. So it, it's interesting but that's the thing is that uh, you know what whatever their economic status may be and their funding situation may be the fact that whether it's good or bad that they're actually choosing to put money into the space program whereas we're running short on our budget, so we choose to take away money from it. I think that's just an interesting viewpoint. Again, we're talking only $6.5 billion. Again, I use the term only lightly in comparison to our $17 billion. But still, I mean, that's an over 50% increase while our numbers are slowly decreasing. And I think that personally, that's That kind of explains why Russia is the only one sending people to and from space right now, while uh, we're looking at our first manned test flight in 2021 with Orion and the Space Launch System. You know, I I mean, we all want to keep the International Space Station running, and we're obviously giving money towards it. But they're the ones saying, "All right, we got to get people to and from, and that's how we're going to survive as a spacefaring nation." So, I mean, it's great that someone's doing it in the interim, but... I don't know. I think that says a lot about our lack of dedication to our space program.
0: I think you mentioned earlier that we're looking at a possible uh, cut of a proposed budget of a billion dollars. Is that right?
1: If the sequester stays as is, yes.
0: Okay. A billion is a thousand million. Now, let me throw in a, a couple examples out there. And this isn't anything that's even been mentioned. In fact, Actually, this was a news release just four days ago about a couple of Explorer projects that have been selected. And I'll give you a brief background. The Explorer program has launched more than 90 missions since 1958, including its namesake, Explorer 1, which discovered the Earth's radiation belts. The Explorer program is NASA's oldest continuous space program. It's designed to provide frequent, low-cost did anyone say a billion is a thousand millions? Low-cost access to space for principal investigator-led space science investigations. And it's particularly relevant to the heliophysics and astrophysics programs and part of NASA's science mission directorate. Well, here's the two satellites that have been selected from a uh, Explorer announcement of opportunity in 2010. One is called ICON, the Ionospheric Connection, led by uh, Thomas Emmel of the University of California, Berkeley, and it's going to probe the extreme variability of the Earth's ionosphere with in-situ and remote sensing instruments. They're going to be looking at fluctuations in the ionosphere that interfere with signals from communications and GPS satellites, and all of that is economic impact when things don't go well with the satellites we rely on so much. The second program is the Global Scale Observations of the Lemon Disk. This is the GOLD mission. This is at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. Go UCF! It's an imaging satellite that's going to fly on a commercial communication satellite in geo-orbit, and it's going to image the Earth's thermosphere and ionosphere. Now, I'm not going to talk about the satellites. I'm going to talk about the costs briefly since we're hitting on budget and this contrast between a uh, billion-dollar cut that, that NASA is, uh, it may well be seeing soon and uh, Russia's increase. Well, the NASA Explorer missions, such as ICON, are capped at $200 million each, excluding the launch vehicle. The Explorer missions of opportunity, such as gold, are capped at $55 million each so if you got a 1000 million dollars that you've got to take away well here's a 200 million dollar satellite and a 55 million dollar satellite plus for one the launch vehicle and for the other the launch cost to uh, to piggyback on a commercial satellite and so hey well we can save some money there now please don't anybody get upset this was just announced, so this is obviously something NASA is planning for, but they're relatively small numbers in terms of some of the projects that NASA has had over the years, and if you got a billion dollars that you've got to, uh, to take away, you're going to be taking it from little things, relatively speaking, that still are quite important and quite significant. This isn't something that we would want to see go away. I, I, I can't imagine making some of the choices that are going to happen. And by the way, sequestration, uh, I'm an electronics technician with the FAA, Federal Aviation Administration. been doing my job for a long time, and we start seeing our furloughs uh, in a week. And they'll go through the end of the fiscal year. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's going to happen. And so I would fully expect for the rest of the U.S. budget, to be have some effects as well
1: the sequester is a scary thing without a doubt as we've mentioned in the past and you know you hate to see it affecting things you know going to the nasa budget going to the satellites and everything you know you hate to see it affecting these great things and you know these people like you you know work hard it's a terrible thing
0: You know, nobody wants to see anything cut because there's so many things that are important. But obviously, the fact that uh, our elected politicians have brought us to this point, to this crossroad, it needs to happen. And it's unfortunate. But uh, let me mention another one just to give an idea while we're talking budget, if it's all right to go into the uh, Space Command story, Sawyer. Is that good? Go for it. Okay, United States Air Force, the Space Command chief recently spoke at the National Space Symposium, and he said that there's going to be some hard choices that'll have to be made. Now, this is the U.S. USAF Space Command. He said he he talked about several things, and we've already hit on them from another perspective. But uh, near Earth objects, let's talk about space junk. He said there's more than five hundred thousand man-made objects in orbit today u s. tracking systems are tracking less than five percent. Uh, most are too small to be picked up by current sensors, but they can cause catastrophic damage to satellites. He mentions that we need to get better debris debris mitigation. He said he, acknowledging the budget cuts, he said on behalf of uh, on behalf of the federal government, he apologized. That they couldn't have everyone at that conference that they wanted to to be there. In other words, they actually had participants in the conference that weren't able to attend because of budget. So, what does this mean? Well, the Air Force is going to have to look at furloughing civilian employees that they have. We have a space fence program and that's part of this detection of these space junk this debris up there he said a third of the receivers used for the space fence program have been put in cold storage for the remainder of the year that means the eastern part of the united states is no longer covered by the space fence program which provides surveillance of objects flying over the continental u.s now the air force does have another radar in northwest florida at eglin air force base it's capable of countering that loss but doing so retasks it from its primary mission in order for it to cover space junk and tracking of debris. So they're taking risks. They also mention a radar in North Dakota that's being reduced to eight hours a day of usage, and that's part of a missile warning network. Another radar in the Aleutian Islands, scheduled to go to quarter power, which would have been adequate for missile warning because of the heightened tensions in North Korea, uh, they're going to leave it at full power. And now going to quarter power would also have harmed their space surveillance mission. But since they're staying at full power because of tensions with North Korea, it's going to cost an additional $5 million. Now, all of these things, when you look at it, everybody is raising their hands saying, we need to do this. We need to do that. We've got to do that. There's no way we can afford not to, to do this, that, and the other. And uh, there's tough choices to be made. And that's what this general was saying at this conference. And, uh... That's all the bad news that I can possibly even tolerate bringing up myself. I like more positive stories.
1: I agree, because, I mean, you think about that, that's scary. That's our defense system, almost, and it's just, you know, the budget will power them down a little bit to minimum. That doesn't scare you at all, does it?
0: And would you like to look for missiles today, or would you like to look for space junk?
1: Yeah, I know. It's a The fact that we even have to make a decision between the two is sad, but I digress, and we try to move on to happier stories as we move away from our budget-infested round two. And, uh, let's move to round three, which is definitely a lot happier, at least I like to think so, because we're talking about, um, everybody's favorite reusable spacecraft, and that, of course, is the Space Shuttle. As you might recall, the final Space Shuttle launch was back in July 8th of 2011, and we've reported multiple instances of the end of the Space Shuttle program. And there's one step left to make the official ending of the program, and that is for the opening of the final shuttle exhibit. Space Shuttle Discovery is in its home in D.C. Space Shuttle Enterprise is in its home and hopefully to be in its fixed home very soon in New York City. And Space Shuttle Endeavor is in its temporary home right now in California as they work on completing the full exhibit for it. Speaking of completing the full exhibit for it, that's what they're doing right now at the Kennedy Space Center Visitors Complex down in Florida. Late last week, work was underway to start raising up the model solid rocket boosters for the exhibit. If you don't know, we've talked with um, Andrea Farmer from the Kennedy Space Center, as well as her boss, uh, Bill Moore, before, and they were talking about the entryway, which will be the two model solid rocket boosters and the model external tank that used to be on display at the entryway to the Kennedy Space Center Visitors Complex. Those are being erected above the entrance to what will be the $100 million Atlantis display. That display is actually set to open a lot sooner than you think. That is set to open on Saturday, June 29th, 2013. Now, the plan for the exhibit is for it to be angled as if it would be turning slightly with the payload bay doors reportedly open, and some satellites and other things nearby to simulate what it would be doing in orbit. And they are currently, again, as we speak on this date, stacking the solid rocket boosters, except they're using a crane and construction workers rather than doing it inside the vehicle assembly building for actual flight. But nonetheless, Atlantis is almost ready to open.
0: You know what? Coincidentally, Sawyer, today I was looking at the pictures that I had on my phone, and I found pictures that I'm looking at the final mission of atlantis it landed on july 21st at 557 eastern daylight time and three hours and about 10 minutes after that i was standing 100 feet away from atlantis on the shuttle landing facility runway looking at her just just barely three hours plus a little bit from its wheel stop and um and then in november of last year november 2012 seeing Atlantis roll over from the VAB over to the visitor complex and here thinking about in just a few short months having the, the exhibit open. And, uh, you know, I remember a lot of moments where there was sort of a lump in my throat thinking about the kind of the sadness, the, the, this, the success as well of this shuttle program, but the sadness that it had come to an end. And this is the payoff, this is the payoff, where when the exhibit opens, and it is, I've, I've only seen a few pictures, and honestly, that's because I haven't really looked that much. I kind of want to be surprised, almost. But this is where it pays off. And the payoff, of course, is that the American public get to see up close, in a realistic setting, the, the view of what the shuttle looked like in flight, where if you were a spacewalking astronaut, Uh, Maybe on on a little bit longer than normal tether, what you would have seen from being outside the uh, payload bay.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know what you mean about the lumps in your throat. The last time I saw Atlantis up close was back on July 7th of 2011 at uh, the RSS retract. By the time we got out there, the rotating service structure was retracted, but there was Atlantis up on the pad. That was the closest I'd ever personally gotten to a shuttle at that point. Previously, it was three miles, not a couple hundred feet. But it it was a beautiful bird seeing it vertical and then seeing it launch the next day, and I don't know how I'm going to be seeing it in the exhibit, because, I mean, it, it was different for me with Enterprise, because I'd been working on that for a couple of years with the Intrepid Sierra and Space Museum, and I didn't have as close of a connection. I saw Atlantis launch on her final launch with the final crew for the final time. I don't know. <laughs> I think I may return my tickets to go there the 29th. I don't know if I can handle this anymore.
0: well if you pull it off if you get down there and see Atlantis I bet you'll be back yeah you know
1: what I think I'm going to have to suffer through it and do it for the listeners and do it for the fans and I'll be there on June 29th hopefully as you will be too Mark and we'll be there for the official opening so keep an eye out for the July episode of Talking Space where we talk about the Atlantis opening I'll be there All right. So, from one space shuttle to something that shares the name of space shuttle?
0: Yeah, let's talk about Endeavor. My girl! And now, Endeavor's in California, right?
1: Yes, at the California Science Center near Los Angeles. She's my girl. I'm sorry, Atlantis, but Endeavor's my girl. If you've listened
0: to the show a while, you know that. Oh, definitely. Well, I'm going to talk about a different Endeavor. This is a little story about a supercomputer named Endeavor. Now, NASA has a division, their acronym is NAS, which stands for NASA Advanced Supercomputing Division. And what their job is, is some high-end computing technologies. And for more than 25 years, NAS has been associated with leadership and innovation, through the high-end computing community, another acronym, HEC. They've played a role in shaping some of the high-end computing standards, the paradigms. They provide leadership, and I don't even know what this means, in the areas of large-scale InfiniBand fabrics, luster open-source file systems, and hyperwall technologies. Sounds cool. Well, they have a, a supercomputer called Pleiades. It's a petaflop-scale supercomputer. Super it provides resources and is th- to scientists throughout the U.S., and it's currently ranked the 11th most powerful system in the world. This uh, Pleiades supercomputer, I'll get to, to Endeavour in just a second, they provide 8 million times more computational power than the first Cray XMP supercomputer that was at the NAS facility in 1984. And what these supercomputers allow is such things as the Kepler planetary search. They do some hurricane tracking and prediction. They do ocean and sea ice state research and also a heart assist device. Uh, Supercomputers were critical in the development of some of these things. Uh, Here's a uh, number that's on their website. The approximate number of CPU hours delivered by the high-end computer complex since August of 2008. It is... 3,985,036,950, Three billion nine hundred and eighty-five million thirty-six thousand nine hundred and fifty. Oops, it just rolled over to to another thousand. But they got a lot of CPU hours that are that are part of their program. The Endeavour supercomputer that was just installed in 2013 took the place of the Columbia supercomputer named. This, of course, is named in honor of the space shuttle Endeavour. And this is based on the Intel Xeon Sandy Bridge processor. The processor power, it's in a large shared memory cluster like Columbia, but it allows it to provide more high end computing resources while occupying 10% of Columbia's footprint. Um, I think it's just cool. I don't understand a lot of what this is telling me, but it seems familiar. But the fact that it's a supercomputer and one of the most powerful in the world, it's like, oh, Okay, <laughs> I respect you. But um, I just thought I'd mention something about Endeavour since you were talking about Atlantis and I saw the Endeavour story. I thought it was kind of interesting to think about NASA having a supercomputer division.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of times you think of NASA's space and then people think even less of it for aeronautics, even though that's the first A. But even less people think of it when it comes to the technology perspective of it such as having supercomputers because I mean people think of that with Google and similar things but uh, you gotta love how they have the new one named after Endeavor and uh, the older one Columbia so I-, I gotta show my respect for them keeping their space shuttle names for supercomputers and of course for me NASA keeping so many acronyms alright so we're gonna finish it off here with a couple of quick lightning rounds Uh, Which I've got a bunch of quick stories Basically is what I mean with that And so here we go Starting it off with April 12th, 2013 Being a major anniversary On April 12th, 1961 Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space And that is celebrated around the world With the Yuri's Night celebration And it seemed like everyone had a great time with that And to everyone who had a Yuri's Night party Hope you enjoyed that also on April 12th in 1981 was the launch of STS-1, which is the first space shuttle mission, and that was, space shuttle, going back to what you were just talking about the supercomputers, Columbia. So, a couple of big space anniversaries on April 12th. You were there for STS-1, weren't you, Mark?
0: Yeah, sure was. You know, it's funny, uh, on Friday the 12th, just we just passed the date didn't even register. It wasn't until I got home later and saw something on Twitter about Yuri's night, and then I still forgot that it was the anniversary of STS-1, but yeah, my wife and I were there. We saw it launch from alongside the Indian River in US-1 in Titusville, and uh, it was very exciting. So you were there for STS-1
1: and then STS-135 for the beginning and the end?
0: Yeah, yeah. Never would have expected that. And the thing that surprised me, and this is where, folks, life gets away from you. you got to pay attention. I never would have thought that I would have not seen a shuttle launch after STS-1 until STS-129. That was the next launch I saw. Now, I saw many of them on TV. I, I well remember uh, a few launches. I know we all do. Uh, some of the, the tragedies and also... Uh, Some of the surprises, like when I think Discovery on her maiden flight had a engine start and shutdown on the pad. But anyway, it it surprises me to have that many years pass and still at the end of the program, talking to friends and telling them, "Hey, there's only three shuttle launches left. If you want to see one, you need to go." Oh yeah, we need to do that. And most, if not all, of the people that I Talk to that were really, really interested in seeing their first shuttle launch, never saw a single one, and so uh I think we got a lot of exciting times ahead with orbital with spacex SpaceX has got a lot of stuff going on um, future plans their their Falcon Heavy and other vehicles that um, I think we'll have a lot more things to talk about when we look back at the at the history of the program, like we we're mentioning with Yuri's night.
1: Exactly, and just to to make you uh, aware of the time distance, that was between 1981 and then STS 129 was November 09. So just a little bit of time. Yeah. Continuing along with our quick bits here on April 13th, 2013, if we go back to 1970, it was a Friday the 13th for the Apollo 13 mission, and that was the date of the major explosion uh, on board which resulted in the famously misquoted phrase, uh, Houston, we've had a problem here. So keep in mind it was we've had a problem, not Houston, we have a problem, as was popularized in the Apollo 13 movie. Now one thing that was left out of the movie but was included in the original book is a story that was posted on the Smithsonian Air and Space blog, which... Many people don't know this, which is why I figured I'd bring it up anyway, is that on that night, there was a group of five people, of five people who were working at the Mission Control Center, who were taking a break. Um, They went up to the roof of Building 16A at the Manned Spacecraft Center, uh, now the Johnson Space Center, and they had their telescope hooked up to a TV monitor and They were watching the spacecraft go by. And then all of a sudden, the dimmer spacecraft, followed by the Saturn booster behind it, all of a sudden got brighter, and a lot brighter. And then it started to expand, and there was this cloud around it. And little did they know that they were seeing oxygen leaking out of the Apollo 13 spacecraft. And as they mentioned in it, they didn't even think to go inside and say anything to Mission Control. And turns out they found out what it was eventually.
0: That's another one of those little stories that I never never knew about during that time. And uh, it's can you imagine the surprise?
1: Yeah, because they were saying, yeah, one of them said, one in the world is that. And then every ten seconds it would grow and grow and then fade and then fade until it dissipated into the vacuum of space. And Go figure, they didn't think to call over and say, hey, guys, you've got a problem, as it says here in the article.
0: Yeah, something is a little off nominal with what we're seeing through the telescope.
1: <laughs> we want to get fancy, yes. All right, and going back to one final quick story that I did not mention earlier about the ISS. As we mentioned in past weeks, they're going to have a busy time, the expedition crew up currently. On the 19th of April, which is Friday, they are scheduled to do a spacewalk. So, wishing all of them the best of luck on their EVA, and that is a Russian EVA. So, they will be using the Russian Orlon spacesuits. So, a lot of stuff going on. Okay, now, before we go, that's the end of round three and the stories. I do need to mention two things coming up. Obviously, we talked about the... um, orbital launch, so keep an eye on our Facebook and Twitter accounts for updates on that. But um, also coming up this weekend is a major event in the Northeast, and that is the Northeast Astronomy Forum, or NEAF, located in Rockland County, New York. So if you want to take a trip over, feel free to stop by. Myself and Gene McCulka of Talking Space will be there, and we will sign autographs for $5. I'm kidding, ours are free, but uh, just step on down, say hi, and take a look at some
0: of the telescopes if you'd like. Sorry, but if I was there, and I might caution our listeners, even though the autographs are free, watch out, Sawyer and Gene, don't take your pen. (laughs) They've been known to do that.
1: Don't give away my tricks, Mark.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could go. I've heard heard tweets, and I've heard you talk about it, but uh, one of these days, make the trip from Florida up there and see some really cool stuff.
1: Indeed, and uh, check the hashtag neef two thousand thirteen or neef posse p o s s e for updates and uh, ask anybody who uses that hashtag what it means and they 'll be able to tell you and Of course, obviously, we have to go to a somber note on today 's recording date april fifteenth two thousand thirteen in Boston Massachusetts a-, a terrible thing did occur in the Boston Marathon with uh, some bomb explosions and terrible injuries and devastation and of course here we must take a somber moment and give all of our thoughts uh to the families and the victims of everyone involved in that and uh just know that our thoughts are with you guys there i'm sorry to go from such an upbeat topic to something so somber but it, it has to be mentioned and on that note that brings this episode to its conclusion i'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight Thank you for joining us. Oh, who who's on this list?
0: Uh, long list. Well, wait, thank wait, you- wait, wait, wait. Don't hang up yet. What? <laughs> don't leave me out. I know you're looking to say goodbye to the whole team. And I, wait, it's me. I, I, it's me.
1: I know. I hope I don't forget you. Um, let's see. Which one are you? Okay. Thank you for joining us, Mark Ratterman.
0: Yep. That's me, Mark in the Dark. Good to be here. <laughs> nice talking with you, Sawyer. Hope everybody enjoyed what we had to share. And we'll be back soon.
1: Yes, indeed. We hope to be back with you next week for another fun, exciting episode of Talking Space, and we hope you will once again join us as well. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.